welcome home. Um, we are still in our study called Holy Moses. Um, I'm just going to kind of exegete some passages today, but we're not in Exodus to start. We're going to be in Acts chapter 7, uh, beginning in verse 17. And the reason we're there is because there's a lot more told about Moses' life in that first part of his life in the New Testament than is ever told us in the Old Testament. The Old Testament tells us almost nothing about the first 40 years of, Jesus, of Moses' life, whereas both the book of Acts and the book of Hebrews tell us quite a bit. So we're going to start at verse 17 for a little bit of context. Chapter 7, the book of Acts, I'll give you the context of that. Um, one of the first deacons was a man named Stephen, who uh, chapter 6 tells us was full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Um, he was full of the, the Holy Spirit, and with that came wisdom. And he is about to be martyred. He is before a crowd of very unhappy Jewish people who think he's representing a heretic proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. And he's preaching to them by going back over the Old Testament and ultimately taking the Old Testament and pointing them to Jesus. It doesn't work with most or all of them. In fact, we, later on, if we were to read it, you'd find that Paul was in this crowd. And while it didn't work originally, it would work eventually. Um, but at this time, he's going through the Old Testament with them and pointing towards Jesus. And in verse 17, he says, But as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. In other words, the time of the promise of entering the land that he had promised. Verse 18, until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race, meaning the Jews, and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. It was at this time that Moses was born and he was lovely in the sight of God and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. And that's kind of where we've left off, and that's where I'm going to pray. Lord, we just pray that you would give me an ability to speak beyond my ability to speak. Lord, that you would, you would bring forth morsels from your word that are beyond my notes. Do give me a clear head, I pray. And give me even an eloquent tongue, but more than that, be the teacher of us all. Plant things from your word in every heart and mind in this room where it will bear fruit even years from now, long after we've forgotten where we heard it. And we pray it in Jesus' mighty name, and all God's people said. Um, I won't bother you with the details again, um, but I've shared with you uh, parts of my own life in that when I was eight years old, my parents divorced, my father married his girlfriend, and moved in with uh, her four kids, uh, adopted them, and eventually had a fifth kid who was my half-brother. Um, we all had the name Hartford, and my father entertained this kind of Brady Bunch fantasy, because Brady Bunch came out at the time, that we were all one group. We, we referred to ourselves as the Hartford Horde, uh, the Nine, but we never all lived in the same house. We were really two very different families, even though we claimed one another. In fact, we were almost like... Uh, Remember negatives? We don't get photographic negatives anymore, but it used to be that you'd get negatives of a photo and what was light in the photo was dark in the negative, and what was dark in the negative was light in the photo. And that's the way our families were. Um, my family had two boys born, and then my sister, and then me. Two boys, girl, boy. So did the other one. They had two boys born, girl, and a boy. Their boys all had dark hair and dark skin, and the girl had light hair and light skin. Our boys all had light hair 
and light skin, and the girl had dark hair and dark skin. Their boys had bathed in testosterone in their mother's womb. They rode bicycles off of garages and did bang their heads into walls and giggled about it. My, my brothers and I, we weren't wusses, but we liked books and music, and we ate with utensils. <laughs> so it was kind of different there. Their, the girl in their family was a girly girl. She liked, you know, uh, ribbons and bows and so on. And my sister Tanya was a tomboy. So we're almost like this, this dichotomy where we're kind of the same and yet very different. We tried to blend. We did come to love each other. Uh, I still have affection for that family. But the, the, gener the, the decades that have followed have borne out the idea that we really weren't one family. Today, I still have contact with my oldest brother, Tony, my second eldest brother, Randy, my sister, Tanya, and myself, and almost no contact but for Facebook with any of my stepfamily. My stepbrother, Bill, I haven't seen or heard from in 30 years. He's the one Katie's never even met. And she only met the one she met in a restaurant for half an hour, and they never even greeted her. So there's no real relationship between me and that family, but there is still a relationship with my original family. And I don't want to make that a rule. I know that adoption is real in the Scripture. If God adopts somebody into his family, that's what we as Christians are, adopted into the line of Abraham. And even in the world, people get adopted, and they become real members of the family. But all I know is that in my family, it wasn't real. It was really two families who ultimately proved to be exactly that. Two families. Now, why am I talking about that? Well, because Moses, too, kind of belonged to two families. But only one of them was his real family. We read up to verse 22, and I'll end part of it by saying Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power, words, and deeds. Now, the thing is, is the Scriptures never talk about him being powerful in words and deeds in regard to his life prior to being a prophet. Only in that verse does it speak that way. What we need to do probably is go to Jewish tradition, and we have no place to go to it here outside of Scripture, but Jewish tradition has Moses being a statesman and a soldier in Egypt. Whether or not that's true, we do not know. I've told you before, church tradition can be true. Sometimes it's not. Jewish tradition can also be true. Sometimes it's not. It's not inspired. But that's where, if you watch the movie Moses, you see that Moses, played by Charlton Heston, is a soldier early in the story. Cecil B. DeMille, who did that movie, was raised as a kind of a liberal Christian, but his ancestry was Jewish, so he was familiar with those stories. And it shows up in the movie, even though it doesn't show up in the Scriptures. This is all the hint we have, because the context here is not the context of him being a prophet. It's the years before he was a prophet. 22, he was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he's a man of power in words and deeds. 23, but when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. That's interesting. His brethren. How did he know they were his brethren? Wasn't he taken away as soon as he was weaned and raised by the Egyptians? So how did he know he was Jewish? How did he know they were brethren? How did he really know too much about them at all? That Greek word there for brethren can also be translated as brother. It can mean sibling or it can mean people. 
people from the same race. Go back to, uh, or go to, I just read 23, didn't I? But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. I'm trying to see where I am. All right, let me, let me say this. There is strong scriptural evidence, and I'm going to show some of it today, that Moses did know his ethnicity long before he met God in a bush in Midian. And he also knew about God long before he supposedly met God in a bush in Midian. Now, how well he knew God, we do not know. But there is evidence that he knew about the faith of the Hebrews. He knew they were his people. He knew about their God. And he felt connected to it. Because in the next verse, no, in fact, let me show you that. Let's go to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. We're going to be going back to Acts. So I'm probably telling you too late, but you might want to put a finger in that. Unless you have a little PC and I'm losing my altar here. Where's the Righty, tighty, lefty, loosey, right? Oh, jeez. I was doing left. See, this is why you don't have me doing technical things. All right. Chapter 3, book of Exodus. I'm not doing this too soon. We're going to go back over this later. Here's verse 1. It says, now if his offering... No, goodness. My family's going away and I'm falling apart. I was in Leviticus and I knew that was wrong. Chapter 3 of Exodus, verse 1. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. This is where he ran after he murdered the Egyptian, which we have not gotten to, but I know you're familiar with the story. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush, and he said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And in the Hebrew, that here I am, I don't know about you, but whenever I hear here I am, I think of like Gomer Pyle. Saying, here I am, Sergeant Carter. That's not what that means. In the Hebrew, it means he's on his face. He's saying, I am yours, do with me as you will. There's a connotation of absolute surrender when he says, here I am. He's not just saying, I'm over here. He's saying, I am yours. What verse was that? Four. We go to five. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to worship God. Um, when uh, my family and I first moved to Lincoln from Lee, we had this long backyard, and I t decided to teach the girls a game that I played all the time as a kid. Do you guys remember red light, green light? A, everybody played red light, green light when I was a kid. And they learned the game from me, but before I could teach them the game, I had to teach them the concept of a red light and a green light. Because we had just moved to Lincoln, and they had lived their whole life in Lee. How many red lights and green lights are in Lee? None. 
there is a yellow light that goes like this somewhere in the town, and I can't even remember where it is. They didn't know red lights from green lights. I had to explain the whole concept of a crosswalk, of lights and everything. And I learned that at such an early age. That was one of the first safety issues that came up because they were all around my house. So there was a context to teaching what I wanted to teach them. Another example of this is having a context where people understand what you're talking about is when I was at the ministry in Denver, I preached to homeless guys. And I used to have a saying that they joined in with me on. I would say, it's salvation, not probation. And my message in all of that was is that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. God has not set you aside to watch and see if you perform well enough where He's going to whip it away if you fail. How many of us would fail if that was our religion? Yeah. So I would say, it's salvation, not probation. Those guys got used to hearing me say that. I'd say, it's salvation. And then they go, not probation. They understood it. And it felt good to preach the gospel using that phrase over and over and over. I liked it so much that when I got to Lee, I tried to use it there. Didn't get the same reaction. First and last time I ever said it, I said, it's salvation, not probation. And I swear I could hear crickets in the room. I looked at our faces that were totally blank. They had no idea what I was talking about. Not just because they didn't know the gospel, because they didn't know what probation was. These folks were law-abiding people. Many of them had never lived outside of Penobscot County in their life, and I would bet some of them had never seen a police officer except on TV. They didn't know probation. It was totally out of context. If I'd talked to guys in the city, they would have known what I was talking about. But talking to guys from rural Maine, very rural Maine, I lost them. On its salvation, not probation. Bible preachers always make sure they're in context. If you look at them, uh, for instance, Paul, when he would preach to the Greeks, he would preach based on what the Greeks knew. We talked about this a little last week. He would quote Greek, Greek poets. He didn't do that with the Jews. What he did with the Jews is the same thing Stephen did. What was that? He would quote Moses. He would talk about Abraham. He would talk about Isaac. He would talk about Jacob. He would talk about Moses. He would talk about David. All of it leading to the line of Jesus who would come along in the New Testament. They always understood him. They always knew what he was talking about. He never mentioned Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to the Greeks. Why? They wouldn't have known what he was talking about. Do you notice what God just did with Moses? Verse 6. I am the God of who? Your father. Now, he is God over Pharaoh. <laughs> That's not the father he's talking about. I am the God of your father, the God of who? Is that the God of the, the Egyptians? Now, ultimately he is, but was he then? The God of Isaac. Same question. The answer is no. The God of Jacob. Same question. No. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. That's a lot of reverence for a guy who was hearing about him for the first time. And he knows the context. God didn't say, I am the God of the Father you don't know, and I'm the God of someone named Abraham who you never heard of. He doesn't say that. He speaks of him as though he fully expects Moses to know exactly who he's talking about. Look at verse 6 again. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
And Moses shows that he did know because then he hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Moses was raised among the pharaohs. He was raised as a prince of Egypt. You know what they thought? They thought somebody like Moses was a god. We see how the pharaoh acts later on when Moses begins to quote the God of Israel to him. The pharaoh will say, who is this God of Israel? He doesn't fall on his face and worship until God forces him to. In this case, Moses hears that name and he's on his knees. That implies, does it not, a previous knowledge of the God of Israel? Let me back that up. Go back to uh, Acts 7. I told you we were going back there. I didn't tell you in time, but I did tell you. Acts chapter 7, verses 22 through 25. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. In other words, he knew all about their gods. He knew every one of them. He didn't know them personally, but he knew about them. And he was a man of power and words and deeds. That means as an Egyptian prince. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took revenge for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And listen to this. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. Isn't that interesting? You see the, the knowledge that Moses had about his calling already long before the burning bush at Midian? He already had an idea, had an idea that he was going to be the deliverer of Israel. Where did he get that? We don't know. It doesn't tell us. It's a lot like when we're told that he was beautiful when he was born and his mother and his father did not allow him to be put to death, but hit him and then eventually put him in the river. Well, as I talked about at the time, every mother thinks their child is beautiful, even when the child is way, maybe just a little bit less than beautiful. Because that's the baby. That's my baby. I think my children are all gorgeous. And you think your children are all gorgeous. Maybe they are. Maybe they aren't. But to you and to God, they are. They did not save Moses because they thought he was good looking. They saved Moses because there was an implication in that passage that they knew something about his future. And if Moses knew the God of Israel about him, knew about Abraham, knew about Isaac, knew about Jacob, he must have learned them from somewhere. Do you think he learned them from the courts of Pharaoh? Where might he have learned them? From his parents. Now, a, a quick reading, if we look at how, how she weans the child and hands him back to Pharaoh's daughter, it almost sounds like that's the end of his contact. But even in chapter 4 of Exodus, and you don't have to go there, when Moses is reluctant about doing what God is calling him to do, Moses gives half the job to somebody else. Who? Aaron. And Aaron's already on his way out to see him. God tells him, your brother Aaron is on your way. He doesn't say there's a man you've never met named Aaron. I'll introduce you to him when he gets here. He says, your brother Aaron is coming to see you. And we will eventually read that passage. When they see each other, they rejoice. I've met a lot of people I liked instantly, but I didn't rejoice about anybody I didn't know previously. Maybe you're more friendly than I am. My wife certainly is. But if I'm rejoicing in seeing somebody, that implies I used to know them. And I still know them now, and I'm glad to see them again. 
Obviously, he knew something about his calling before he walked up to a burning bush. And I'm going to prove it to you. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. I get there myself. My mind is so distracted today. I'm into this message and I'm still distracted. My family's leaving me. You can pray for me too, by the way. I'm going to be all by myself. And normally I like that for limited periods of time, but it's not good for any man to be alone all the time. All right, verse 23. You know this chapter. It's the faith chapter. The writer of Hebrews chapter 11. Did I not say that? I'm sorry. Hebrews chapter 11. It's the faith chapter. The writer of, of Hebrews. Michael thinks it's Paul. I don't think it is, but we've never duked it out over this. Um writes this, this, this look at the faith of the founders and the, the patriarchs of the faith. He goes through the Old Testament and talks about how their faith was their, their religion, their, their life. It was their life. In verse 23, it says here, By faith, Moses, when Moses was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child. I just talked about this. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now look at this. <laughs> Somebody is. <laughs> By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. You hear that in Exodus? No, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, he was still an Egyptian prince, apparently right up until the time he murdered somebody. So it wasn't some sort of immediate split from, from Egypt. But he had a focus on another people, another family, besides the one he was supposedly in, and that must have started much earlier than the narrative tells us. It may have started in childhood. He was not going to be counted as a prince of Egypt, even though that, from a worldly perspective, had to have been a really good deal. From what I read, it would have been possible for him to become Pharaoh, ultimately. Now here's the thing. Well, I'll, I'll tell you a story. I have to be careful with this. I'm not going to name the man because we're on the internet. But I know a godly man here in Maine who is a pastor. He and his wife and children. You what? It is not me. No. If it were me, I wouldn't be that careful. <laughs> um, he and his wife, the Lord has taken care of them, but they have always struggled financially. Always struggled financially just to get by. And what makes that interesting is that, according to his wife, she once talked to us about his history, he's from a wealthy family in New York. And they have not disowned him. And he hasn't actually disowned them either. But he wants no part of their wealth. And the reason he doesn't want part of their wealth is because it's attained in a certain way. Let me see if I can illustrate it with a riff. Well, not just Italian. Well, I wasn't asking you to shout it out. <laughs> 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 
He, he's a, he apparently comes from a family that is wealthy, doing things that a man who worships the Lord Jesus Christ cannot connect himself to. And it's not that they're asking him to live that life, but he feels that if he takes any of their riches, he's taking gifts from something that does not honor God. And I think in many ways this is exactly the situation that Moses was in. He was living in a life where God had placed him among the Egyptians, but the life in which he'd been trained, the life that he was brought up in, was not the life to which he was called. The life to which he was called was attached to those slaves, those Hebrew slaves who were his relatives, who were his family. And somewhere along the line, God had apparently communicated to him that he, Moses, was going to deliver them from their bondage. This is implied in these passages. In Acts, when he goes out feeling they're going to know he's coming to deliver them, implies he had the idea of what he was supposed to do. He just didn't know exactly how God was going to use him to do it. We'll talk about that later too. He was ready for that ministry right off. And God had 40 years of shepherding in a desert for him before he was going to be able to do that. And we're going to talk about that at a later sermon. Let's go on in these verses. I read verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasure of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now, you might read that and say, well, what did he know about Christ? Well, he didn't know the name Jesus Christ. He didn't know about the virgin birth. He didn't know about his miracles, because all of that happened much later. But he knew God. And I want to suggest to you, he already knew him before he came to that burning bush. His relationship grew greatly at that point, that there was already a knowledge of the God of Israel in the heart of Moses. Even before, and we'll talk about this too, he murdered a man. And that is what we will talk about next week. Let's go to uh, Exodus 2 and we'll finish up. Are you following what I'm saying? Thanks, Jan. This is the only verse, the, the only voice I really heard. I heard everybody go, mm -hmm. verses 11 and 2, 11 and 12 of chapter 2. Actually, we're going to go through 13. Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up, then he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. Now again, if we look at the New Testament, we know this wasn't just a happenstance thing. He knew these people. And he was probably out there more often than just that. What's more, what we're told in Hebrews and in Acts is that he had a sense of being their deliverer. He was already out there thinking he was going to fulfill God's mission as the deliverer of his people. And he hadn't even been in Midian yet, let alone before a burning bush. Verse, verse, verse 12. So he looked this way and that. And when he saw there was no one around, he struck the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And again, we're going to talk about that, not today. He went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? But he said, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? 
Moses was afraid and said, Surely the matter has become known. We will see later that Pharaoh chased him. In fact, verse 15, let me just read that. It says, When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. That seems like an awful quick turn. And as I hope to show you, either in the next sermon or the one after that, if the Pharaoh is the one I and some others believe it is, he had reason for previous hostility because he was already hostile, hostile to his adopted mother. And we'll talk about that later. Um, this was just an excuse. In politics, they wait for excuses, and when they have them, they jump on them. This is true in the modern world. It was true in the ancient world. And we will talk more about that later. For now, let's pray. Lord, we praise you that you have a calling on all of our lives long before we even know it. That through our faith in you, oftentimes we think we're ready for ministry long before we are. But that there are dry spells. There are deserts that we must walk through. There are periods of things of troubles. And, and you show it again and again in your scriptures with Joseph and with Moses and with David. Where they, in essence, have to, have to barely survive for the longest time before you bring them into the abundance that you have created for them. This we know is at least in part a picture of the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ prior to the resurrection. That we must first give up the lives we now have in order to receive the fullness of the lives you have for us to come. We must first empty our hands of that which we hold on in this world before being able to accept all that you want to pour, it, pour into them from heaven. We rejoice, Lord, that the God of Moses is the God of all of us. We rejoice not even knowing what lays in our future, Lord, immediate or far or long-term, Lord. For we know that the God of Moses made Moses into everything he said he would make him into, and that he did indeed use him as a deliverer of his people, and you did indeed deliver your people, as you will again with the return of our Lord Jesus. We praise you that by adoption we too are your people, and we praise you in the mighty name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. I didn't come to faith in Christ until I was in my early 30s. And prior to that, for a number of years, I was a professing atheist who used to argue with Christians and take great pleasure in humiliating them when I could. 
But you know, I, I think that there was a part of me deep inside that knew it was all true even before I admitted it out loud. I can remember as a child and the few times we ever went to church when my grandmother would come to town and force us to go and sit through these 12-hour services, which were probably only 45 minutes long. But they would show us these children's pictures of Jesus on the cross. And I, I remember thinking how strange it was that it always made me really, really happy. How strange that is even now, except that I think it was spiritual. I think even before I came to know the Lord, the Lord was already beckoning me. He was already touching my heart and reaching out, as he is to many we love today, as he did with all of us, as he did with Moses. Long before Moses met God, or supposedly met God, by the burning bush, he knew something about the God of Israel. And long, long before that, the God of Israel knew all about him. The same is true with everyone in this room. Nothing is hidden from God. And he has loved you at your worst. He has been pleased with you at your best. And even then you needed mercy. <laughs> and he will be in love with you and showing you great mercy and grace right up until the time the Lord returns when we shall worship him, for we shall see him as he is. And that worship will be love because all our sin will be gone once and forever. And our Savior will be totally in our sight. So go forth knowing that this is just, as Paul would say, to a glass darkly. What we're seeing now is nothing compared to what's to come. And when we see in all the glory of the Lord, we will see it at the same time as Moses and all the great saints of the Old Testament. Rejoice that we are a part of that. Whether our names are listed in the Scriptures or not, they are listed in heaven. And go forth regardless of your situation, knowing that in the end, you're richer than all the Find us online at newlifechurch.today.